<clears throat> Let us remember the words of Psalm 118, 22 to 24. The same stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. On this day the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Just realized I didn't come up with a title for today's sermon. But that's okay. You figure it out. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Advent. <laughs> uh, not Advent. That's, that's what we try not to do during the sermon. Uh, so, this is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. And it's the first Sunday of a new church calendar year. So, Happy New Year. Let us take a moment and review the benefits of observing, observing the church calendar. <clears throat> Without a church calendar, which most of us have been a part of a church that did not uh, observe the, a church calendar at all, each pastor and church is left to determine on their own what the focus of each Sunday will be. The larger church body in the community has little sense of common focus except for maybe the week leading up to Christmas and then, of course, Easter Sunday. And if Easter Sunday happens to come in the middle of the spring sermon series on how to live your best life now or something like that, it may hardly be mentioned during the worship and preaching. Believe me, I can remember as a child growing up in a non-liturgical church, um, often wondering why it was that we had to wear new clothes every Easter. But that was about the extent of the observation of Easter in my home church some years. So the seasons provided by observing the church calendar gives us four weeks to focus on the coming of Christ, both the incarnation of Christ as the child of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem and the second coming of Christ at the end of the ages. In this time of anticipation we should be more prepared to really appreciate and enter into the worship of the humble king born in a cattle stall. And then we have the 12 days of the Christmas season starting on Christmas Day to soak in the wonder of the angels singing above the shepherds proclaiming joy to the world. Next is Epiphany, which is not only recognizing the event of the wise men coming to worship the Christ child, but the larger scope of the light of the world bursting into the history of mankind. Lent is a season of about seven weeks preceding Easter in which we take time to listen to what the Spirit is calling us to surrender. It may be the Lord wants us to abstain from some usual enjoyment in order to seek greater unity of mind, body, and spirit. Or we may feel led to take on some form of service to our community in some way as we allow ourselves to experience greater humility in the example of Christ. Either way, we seek to prepare our minds and hearts to fully enter into the week preceding Easter expecting fresh revelation and awe of the terrible price Jesus willingly accepted upon himself for our redemption. The season of Easter is not one Sunday but seven Sundays so that we may dwell upon the glory of the resurrection 
Then Pentecost Sunday celebrates the birthday of the church. We finish out the year returning to ordinary days in which we focus on the sharpening of our spiritual gifts and the service of one another and our discipleship to Christ. <clears throat> Today's readings begin with a passage from the prophet Isaiah foretelling the coming restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. But it quickly expands far beyond just Israel as the vision includes the whole world. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations, all the nations shall flow to it. There are many other Old Testament passages that anticipate a restoration of not just the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, but indeed the entire world. And that is what we're looking forward to, the time, the end of time, in which there will be no more conflict, no more war, suffering, or pain. And today's psalm, Psalm 122, it's taken from those psalms referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. The 15 psalms starting with Psalm 120 going through 134. Many scholars believe that the title indicates these psalms were sung by worshipers as they ascended the road to Jerusalem to attend the three pilgrim festivals each, each year during the time the temple was located in Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> just throw this out as a food for thought. Whether or not we should interpret Jerusalem as it is mentioned in these and other prophetic scriptures as the literal city located in the Middle East or as the New Jerusalem seen at the end of Revelation has long been a matter of debate and speculation. Today, let's just suggest that the prevailing view among many charismatic believers that the present-day Israel is the fulfilling of prophecy is not a consensus throughout the larger body of Christ or throughout church history. If, you want to, if you're interested in studying more on this topic, you might look up the word supersessionism. Supersessionism, also known as replacement theology for starters. I found it interesting that the beginning of the modern Zionist movement, the return of Israel to reestablish a modern day state of Israel, apparently started in the 1840s among Protestant scholars in England. So at any rate, we know that uh, there's much in the scripture uh, honoring Jerusalem as the psalm today did and we're definitely to pray for both that specific city located in the nation of Israel today and also looking forward to the new Jerusalem at the end of the ages. The epistle reading in the passage from Romans correctly declares that the end is closer now than when we first believed. And it will also be correct each time we read it. It is a call to awake from slumber, to be alert and engaged in the kingdom of God. As is also the gospel reading, which ends with, Therefore you must be ready, 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Gospel reading for beginning with uh, Jesus comparing to the way life will be at the end of the ages to be similar to the way life was for Noah and his family during at that time before the flood. In our younger days, Sandra and I were committed to street evangelism. We sought to use contemporary Christian music as a means to get the message of the gospel to unbelievers. There was a group that we met, a band of several brothers, David and Claiborne and Rayburn, yeah. their real names, Huff, along with an interesting guy named Keith Thibodeau, who you might know as Little Ricky from I Love Lucy. Uh, we're part of a band out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi called David and the Giants. We brought them to a concert in the auditorium of what was then Tuscaloosa City High School. They had written a song based on the gospel reading today that they closed every con concert with. <clears throat> they made use of the echo effect of too much reverb and performed in such a way that it had a way of raising the hair on the back of my neck when performed live. Uh, how many of you have never heard that song? It's called Noah, David and the Giants. Uh, we might play it after church if you want to hear it. I've got it queued up, but we'll save it for then. At any rate, <clears throat> the point is that the, uh, the New Testament reading from Romans and the Gospel reading both call us to a higher level of alert in our spiritual walk, calls us out of slumber and uh, mediocrity. So uh, let's pay heed to that warning today. I want to share just a brief portion if my, if Sanders iPad works for me, from uh, a book I'm reading called Beauty Will Save the World by Brian Zahn. There we go. The Christian faith is not a theology or a philosophy, though both a theology and a philosophy can be derived from it. Christianity is a story. It is a meta-narrative. It is a grand, overarching story that enables us to make sense of human history. It is the story of how God is setting right a world gone wrong and doing it through Jesus Christ. This is, it is the story that starts with creation in Genesis and takes us all the way through to the new creation in Revelation. It is a story with Jesus Christ at the center of it. In a postmodern world, devoid of any framing narrative that can make sense of the world, the Christian story offers the narrative of hope. This is the story we find ourselves a part of. When we believe the story, that is, the gospel, and enter into it by baptism, we become participants in the story. And this story has a definite end in its view. It is a story with an eschatology, an appointed end. The Apostle Peter speaks of this eschatology as the restoration of all things. 
Acts 3.21 in his sermon uh, on the day of Pentecost I believe it was or maybe not maybe it was after Pentecost uh, it's his second sermon he said repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time The eschatology is about the restoration of all things. The Apostle Paul proclaims a new creation and tells of Jesus handing the restored kingdom back to the Son. 2 Corinthians 5. Seventeen. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, the New American Standard inserts the words, He is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Uh, in, in the original, in the Greek, it doesn't have the He is. That's provided so that we might understand it better. But it could also be read... Uh, in Christ is a new creation. All things have become new. <clears throat> so all things are becoming new. John the Revelator talks about the new Jerusalem and all things being made new in Revelation chapter 21. The end of the Christian story is beautiful. It is the beautiful, they lived happily ever after, culmination that we long for. It's the true hope that myths and fairy tales allude to. It is restoration, new creation, the new Jerusalem, and all things being made new. This is what we mean when we say Christianity is eschatological. It's not easy to say for me, eschatological. The end is important because it determines how we should act within the present as we head toward an appointed future. So we must be absolutely clear about this. The eschatological hope of Christianity is restoration and new creation. But the end of the story of the Bible is an end that has been inaugurated. That is to say, it is an end that has already begun. Thus theologians speak of inaugurated eschatology. This simply means that the end has already been initiated. It means that when we confess Jesus is Lord, we are saying that Jesus has been inaugurated as, as the ruler of the world to bring about the end appointed by God, the restoration of all things. We must be careful that when we make the Christian confession of Jesus as Lord, we don't in actuality mean that he is <coughs> Lord elect. We speak of a newly elected president who has not yet been inaugurated, who has not yet taken office as president elect. 
Jesus is not Lord elect. Jesus is Lord now. Jesus has been inaugurated and he has taken office. <clears throat> he has ascended to the throne of God and sits at the right hand of the Father as the reigning ruler of the nations. Unless we see this clearly, and this is essential Christian orthodoxy, we will end up thinking that because Jesus has not yet taken office, we need to take it upon ourselves to run the world. No, Jesus is Lord. And if you say, but it doesn't look like it, I will say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Nothing is more central to the Christian faith than our confession of Jesus as Lord. And this confession must form our eschatology. So what I took away from that <clears throat> was the end is important because it determines how we should act within the present. The end is important because it determines how we should live in the present as we head toward that appointed future. So I need to acknowledge that Jesus is in control. I need to acknowledge that he is my king. That he is indeed the king of kings. I'm just a servant in his kingdom. So I should seek not my will, but that his will be done. That I am to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness as, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon of the Mount referring to his father's kingdom. And once I've set about to seek first the kingdom of the father then I must trust that my perfect father in heaven will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. Amen. Let's stand together and declare a common faith in the Nicene Creed.